Unless otherwise indicated, Ratchet Book Club is intended for a mature audience. Viewer discretion is greatly advised. Welcome to Ratchet Book Club, where we read hood classics and good classics. I'm Derek. 916-633-1537. Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com. Ratchet Book Club on Twitter. Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. Chapter 10. Tears damp on his cheeks. Green eyes wash clear of bitter emotions and clearer doubts as well. The maniac had the look of a pilgrim who has been to the mountaintop and knows his destiny, his purpose. He freed me and Lori from the chairs, but left us tethered to each other. Are you both locals? He asked as we rose to our feet. After his violent display and flamboyant emotional outbursts, I found it difficult to believe that he now wished to engage in pleasant chit-chat. The question had a purpose more important than the words themselves conveyed, which meant our answers might have consequences that we cannot foresee. Warily, I hesitated to reply. And the same logic led Lori to remain silent as well. He persisted. What about it, Jimmy? This is the county library, so people come here from all around. Do you live in town or outside somewhere? Although I didn't know which answer he would regard favorably, I sensed his silence would earn me a bullet. He had shot Lionel Davis for less, for no reason at all. I live in Snow Village, I said. How long have you been here? All of my life. Do you like it here? Not handcuffed in the sub-cellar of the library, I said, but I like most other places in town, yeah. His smile was uncannily appealing, and I couldn't figure out how anyone's eyes could twinkle so constantly as his, unless implanted in them were motorized prisms that ceaselessly tracked environmental light sources. Surely no other maniacal killer could make you want to like him just by cocking his head and favoring you with a crooked smile. He said, you're a funny guy, Jimmy. I don't mean to be, I said apologetically, shuffling my feet on the home limestone floor. Then I added, Un unless, of course, you, you want me to be. In spite of everything I've been through, I have a sense of humor, he said. I could tell. What about you? He asked Lori. I have a sense of humor too, she said. For sure. You're way funnier than Jimmy. Way, she agreed. But what I meant, he clarified, is do you live here in town? As I had answered the same question positively and not been immediately shot, she dared to say, yeah, two blocks from here. You lived here all your life? No, just a year. This explained how I could miss seeing her for 20 years. 
In a community of 14,000, you could pass a long life and never speak to 90% of the population. If I had just once glimpsed her turning the corner, however, I would never have forgotten her face. I would have spent long, anxious nights awake, wondering who she was, where she'd gone, how I could find her. She said, I grew up in Los Angeles, 19 years in L.A., and I wasn't totally bug-eyed crazy yet, so I knew I had almost no time left to get out. Do you like it here in Snow Village? He asked. So far, yeah, it's, it's nice. Still smiling, still twinkly-eyed, with his charm in full gear, and none of the insane guy edge to his voice. He nevertheless said, Snow Village is an evil place. Well, Lori said, sure it's evil, but parts of it are also kind of nice. Like Morelli's restaurant, I said. Lori said, they have fabulous chicken alaba, and the Bijou is a terrific place. Delighted that we shared these favorite places, I said, imagine a movie theater actually called the Bijou. All those cute art deco details, she said, and they use real butter on the popcorn. I like Center Square Park, I said. The maniac disagreed. No, that's an evil place. I sat there earlier, watching the birds crap on the statue of Cornelius Randolph Snow. What's evil about that? Laurie wondered. If he was half as pompous as the statue makes him look, the birds have got it right. I don't mean the birds are evil, the maniac explained with sunny good humor, although they might be. What I mean is the park is evil, the ground, all the ground this town is built on. I wanted to talk to Lori about more things we liked, attitudes we might have in common. And I was pretty sure she wanted to have that conversation too. But we felt we had to listen to the smiley guy because, you know, he had the gun. So, did they build the town on the old Indian burial ground or something? Lori wondered. He shook his head. No, no. The earth itself was good once long ago, but it was corrupted because of evil things that evil people did here. Fortunately, Lori said, I don't own any real estate. I'm a renter. I live with my folks, I told him, hoping this fact would exempt me from complicity with the evil earth. The time has come, he said, for payback. As if to emphasize his threat, a spider suddenly appeared and slowly descended on a silken thread from within the shade of one of the overhead lamps. Projected by the cone of light, the eight-legged shadow on the floor between us and the maniac was the size of a dinner plate, distorted and squirming. Answering evil with evil means everyone loses, Lori said. I'm not answering evil with evil, he replied not angrily but with exasperation. I'm answering evil with justice. Well, that's very different, Lori said. If I were you, I told the maniac, I'd wonder how to know for sure that something I'm doing is justice and not just more evil. I mean, the thing about evil is it's slippery. My mom says the devil knows how to mislead us into thinking we're doing the right thing when what we're really doing is the devil's work. Your mother sounds like a caring person, he said. Sensing I had made a connection with them, I said, she is. When I was growing up, she even ironed my socks. This revelation drew from Lori a look of troubled speculation. Concerned that she might think I was an eccentric or worse, a mama's boy, I quickly added, I've been doing my own ironing since I was 17, and I never iron my socks. Lori's expression did not change.
I don't mean that my mother still irons them, I hasten to assure her. Nobody irons my socks anymore. Only an idiot irons socks. Lori frowned. Not, not that I mean that my mother's an idiot, I clarified. She's a wonderful woman. She's not an idiot. She's just, she's, she's just caring. I mean, other people who iron their socks are idiots. At once, I saw that with the language skills of a lummox, I had taught myself into a corner. If either of you iron your socks, I said, I don't mean that you're idiots. I'm sure you're just caring people like my mom. With disturbingly similar expressions, Laurie and the maniac stared at me as though I had just walked down the debarkation ramp from a flying saucer. I thought that being shackled to me suddenly creeped her out, and I figured the maniac would decide that a single hostage was plenty of insurance after all. The descending spider still hung over our heads, but a shadow on the floor was smaller, now the size of a salad plate, and blurry. To my surprise, the killer's eyes grew misty. That, that was very touching. The socks, very sweet. My sock story didn't seem to have struck a sentimental chord in Lori. She stared at me with squint-eyed intensity. The maniac said, You're a very lucky man, Jimmy. I am, I agreed, although my only bit of luck, being cupped to Lori Lynn Hicks instead of a diseased wino, seemed to be turning sour. To have a caring mother, the maniac mused, what must that be like? Good, I said. It's good but I didn't trust myself to say more. Spinning gossamer from its innards, the spider unreeled a longer umbilical, finally dangling in front of our faces. With dreamy voice eloquence, the killer said, to have a caring mother who makes you hot cocoa every evening, tucks you in the bed every night and kisses you on the cheek and reads you to sleep. Before I myself could read, I was always read to sleep because ours is a bookish family. More often than not, however, the reader had been my grandma Rowena. Sometimes, the story was about a Snow White whose seven dwarf friends suffered fatal accidents and diseases until it was snow alone against the evil queen. Come to think of it, a two-ton safe fell on Happy once. But that was a lot cleaner than what happened to poor Sneezy. Or maybe Weena would read the one about Cinderella, the dangerous glass slippers splintering painfully around Cindy's feet, the pumpkin coach plunging off the road into the ravine. I was a grown man before I discovered that in Arnold Lobel's charming frog and toad books, there was not always a scene in which one or the other of the title characters had a foot gnawed off by another Meadowland creature. I didn't have a caring mother, the maniac said. A disturbing note of whiny distress entering his voice. My childhood was hard, cold, and loveless. Now occurred an unexpected turn of events. My fear of being shot to death took second place to the dread that this guy would harangue us with a droning account of his victimization. Beaten with wire coat hangers, forced to wear girly clothes until he was six, sent to bed without his porridge. I didn't need to get kidnapped, cuffed and held at gunpoint to be subjected to a pity fest. I could have stayed home and watched daytime TV talk shows. Fortunately, he bit his lip, stiffened his spine, and said, It's a waste of time to dwell on the past. What's done is done. 
Unfortunately, the glimmer of teary self-pity in his eyes was not replaced by that charming twinkle, but instead by a fanatical gleam. The spider had not continued its descent. It hung in front of our faces, perhaps freaked out by the sight of us and frozen in fear. As though he were a vintner plucking a grape from a vine, the maniac pinched the fat spider between the thumb and forefinger of his left hand, crushed it, and brought the mangled remains to his nose to savor the scent. I hoped he wouldn't offer me a sniff. I have a highly refined sense of smell, which is one reason that I'm a natural-born baker. Fortunately, he had no intention of sharing the heady fragrance. Unfortunately, he brought the morsel to his mouth and delicately licked the arachnid paste. He savored this strange fruit, decided it was not sufficiently ripe, and wiped his fingers on the sleeve of his jacket. Here was a graduate of Hannibal Lecter University, ready for a career in hospitality services as the new manager of the Bates Motel. This spider sampling had not been a performance for our benefit. The entire incident had been as unconscious as shooing away a fly, except the opposite. Now, quite unaware of the effect his culinary curiosity had on us, he said, Anyway, the time for talking is long past. It's time for action now, for justice. And how will that justice be achieved, Lori wondered. For the moment, anyway, she was no longer able to maintain a sprightly, let alone flippant, let alone devil-may-care tone of voice. In spite of his adult baritone, he sounded uncannily like an angry little boy. I'm going to blow up a lot of stuff and kill a bunch of people and make this town sorry. Sounds pretty ambitious, she said. I've been planning this all my life. Having changed my mind, I said, actually, I'd really like to hear about the coat hangers. What coat hangers? He asked. Before I could talk my way into a bullet between my eyes, Lori said, do you think I could have my purse? He frowned. Why? It's a female emergency. I couldn't believe she was going to do this. I knew I hadn't won the argument, but I assumed I had put enough doubt in her mind to give her second thoughts. Female emergency? The maniac asked. What's that mean? You know, she said coyly. For a guy who looked like a babe magnet, able to draw swooning women like iron filings from a hundred mile radius, he proved surprisingly obtuse in this matter. How would I know? It's that time of the month, she said. He claimed bafflement. The middle? As if it were infectious, Lori caught his bewilderment. The middle? It's the middle of the month, he reminded her. The 15th of September. So what? It's my time of the month, she elucidated. He just stared at her, befuddled. I'm having my period, she declared impatiently. The furrows in his brow were smoothed away by understanding. Ah, a female emergency. Yes, that's right. Hallelujah. Now may I have my purse? Why? If she ever got her hands on that nail file, she would plunge it into him with enthusiasm. I need a tampon, she said. You're saying there's a tampon in your purse? Yes. And you need it now. And you can't wait? No, I absolutely can't wait, she confirmed.
Then she played to his compassionate side, which he hadn't shown to the headshot librarian, but which she seemed to think must be there, considering that he had not been actually rude. I'm sorry, gee, this is so embarrassing. Regarding matters female, he might be a bit thick, but regarding Machiavellian schemes, he smelled a rat instantly. What's really in your purse? A gun? Admitting that she had been caught out, Lori shrugged. No gun. Just a pointy metal nail file. You were gonna what? Stab me in the carotid artery? Only if I couldn't get to one of your eyes, she said. He raised his pistol, and though he pointed at her, I figured that once he started blasting away, he'd drill me too. I had seen what he had done to the newspaper. I should kill you dead right here, he said, although without any animosity in his voice. You should, she agreed. I would if I were you. He grinned and shook his head. What a piece of work. Right back at you, she said and matched his grin. My teeth were revealed molar to molar as well, though my grin was so tight with anxiety that it hurt my face. All these years, planning for this day, the maniac said, I expected it to be gratifying in a savage sort of way, even thrilling, but I never thought it would be as much fun as this. Lori said, a party can never be better than the guests you invite. The lunatic killer considered this, as if Laurie had quoted one of the most complex philosophical propositions of Schopenhauer. He nodded solemnly, rolled his tongue over his teeth, uppers and lowers, as though he could taste the brilliance of those words, and finally he said, How true. How very true. I realized that I wasn't holding up my end of the conversation. I didn't want him to get the idea that a party of two might be more fun than three. When I opened my mouth, no doubt to say something even more inappropriate than my stupid coat hangers line, something that would bring me closer to a bullet in the groin, a great hollow pill told through the vaulted subcellar. King Kong pounded his mighty fist one, two, three times against a giant door and the massive wall that separated his half of the island from the half where the nervous natives lived. The maniac brightened at the sound. That'll be honker and crinkles. You'll like them. They have the explosives. Chapter 11 As it turned out, Cornelius Randolph Snow not only had a keen appreciation for fine Victorian architecture, but also for Victorian hugger-mugger of the kind that flourished in melodramas of the period, and that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle had used with singular effect in his immortal Sherlock Holmes yarns. Concealed doors, hidden rooms, blind staircases, secret passageways. Hand in hand, but only because of the steel cuffs. Quickly, but only because of the gun prodding us in the back, Laurie and I went to the end of the room where the maniac had brutally shot the old newspaper. Shells spanned the width of that wall, rose from floor to ceiling. Stored thereof were periodicals and labor slip cases. The maniac studied several shelves, up and down, back and forth, maybe looking for the 1952 run of Life magazine, or maybe hoping to spot a juicier spider. Nope, neither. He was searching for a hidden switch. He found it, and a section of bookshelves pivoted open, revealing an alcove behind them. At the back of the alcove, a stone wall embraced an iron-banded oak door. 
In an age that demonstrated harsher punishment for patrons with overdue books, they might have kept the tardy Jane Austen reader here until solitary confinement and a short ration of gruel brought the miscreant to remorse and contrition. The maniac pounded one fist three times on the door. Obviously an answering signal. From the farther side came two knocks, hollow and loud. After the maniac responded with two, a single knock came from the space beyond. He answered with one thump. This seemed to be an unnecessarily complicated passcode, but the maniac was delighted by the ritual. He beamed happily at us. His toothy smile no longer had quite the endearing quality that had marked it previously. He was an adorable-looking fellow, and against your better judgment, you still wanted to be charmed by him. But you kept scanning for dark, hairy bits of spider on his lips and tongue. A moment after the last knock, the buzz of a small high-speed motor arose from the farther side of the door. Then metal shrieked on metal. A diamond point steel drill bit thrust through a keyhole. The spinning shaft chewed up the lock mechanism and spat metal shavings on the floor. Our host raised his voice and reported with boyish enthusiasm. We tortured a member of the Snow Village Historical Preservation Society, but we couldn't get keys out of him. I'm sure he would have given them to us if he had known where to get them, but it was our bad luck and his that we chose the wrong person to torture. So we've had to resort to this. Lori's cuffed hand sought my cuffed hand and held it tight. I wish that we had met under different circumstances, like at a town picnic or even at a tea dance. The drill withdrew from the lock plate and fell silent. The broken lock assembly rattled, clinked, twanged, and gave way as the door opened into the alcove. I had a glimpse of what appeared to be an eerily lit tunnel beyond the door. A dour man came through, out of the alcove, past the pivoted section of the bookcase, into the library subcellar. A similar specimen followed him, pulling a handcart. The first newcomer was about 50 totally bald, with black eyebrows so shaggy that you could have knitted a child's sweater from them. He wore khakis, a green bandlon shirt, and a shoulder holster with a gun. Excellent, excellent. You're right on time, honker, said the maniac. I had no way of knowing whether the new guy's name was, say, Bob Honker, or whether this nickname was inspired by the size of his nose. He had an enormous nose. Once it must have been straight and proud, but time had rendered it a spongy lump, ruddy with the fine webbing of burst capillaries, the nose of a serious drinker. Honker appeared to be sober now, but brooding and suspicious. He scowled at me, scowled at Lori, and said gruffly, Who are the bitchin' Bigfoot? Hostages, the maniac explained. The hell we need hostages for? If something goes wrong, you think something will go wrong? No, the maniac said, but they entertained me. The second newcomer stepped away from the handcart to join the discussion. He resembled Art Garfunkel, the singer, a decadent choir boy's face, electroshocked hair. He wore a zippered nylon windbreaker over a t-shirt, but I could see the bulk of a holster and weapon beneath it. Whether something goes wrong or not, he said. We'll have to waste them. Of course, the maniac said. It would be a shame to off the bitch without using it, said the choir boy. 
More than their casual talk of murdering us, this reference to Lori as it chilled me. Her hand gripped mine so tightly that my knuckles ached. The maniac said, put her out of your mind, Crinkles. That isn't going to happen. Whether this is the guy's legal name or nickname, you might expect someone called Crinkles to either have a well-creased face or to be wonderfully amusing. His face looked as smooth as a hard-boiled egg, and he was about as amusing as an antibiotic-resistant streptococcus infection. To the maniac, Crinkle said, Why is she off limits? She belong to you? She belongs to nobody, our host replied with some annoyance. We didn't come all this way just to score some quiff. White people words are just fascinating, right? Quiff, ladies and gentlemen, quiff. What the fuck? Quiff. I mean, I have heard some horrible things from black folks in the past couple books, but... Mostly wound and mound, but quiff. Huh. Okay. If we don't stay focused on the main objective, the whole operation will fall apart. I felt that I ought to say something to the effect that if they wanted to get at Lori, they would have to come through me. But the truth was, armed and crazy, they would come through me as easily as the blades of a kitchen mixer turning through cake batter. The prospect of dying didn't distress me nearly as much as the realization that I was helpless to defend her. I hadn't made pastry chef yet, but in my mind I'd always been a hero, or could be in a crisis. As a kid, I often fantasized about whipping up souffles of chocolate fit for kings, while at the same time battling the evil minions of Darth Vader. Now reality set in. These violent lunatics will eat Darth Vader in a pita pocket and pick their teeth with his lightsaber. Whether something goes wrong or not, Crinkles repeated, we'll have to burn them. We've already gone over this, the maniac said impatiently. Because they've seen our faces, Crinkle persisted, we'll have to whack them both. I understand, the maniac assured him. Crinkles had eyes the color of brandy. They grew pale when he said, the time comes, I want to be the one who gets the ice of the bitch. Waste, off, burn, whack, ice. This guy was a walking thesaurus when it came to synonyms for kill. Maybe this meant he had croaked so many people that he found discussion of murder boring and therefore needed richer language to maintain his interests. Or conversely, he might be a hitman wannabe, all boasts and jargon, with no guts when it came to doing the dirty deed. Considering that Crinkles hung out with a madman who shot librarians for no reason and who saw no difference between spiders and bonbons, I decided that the wisest course was not to doubt his sincerity. You can whack her when we don't need hostages anymore, the maniac promised Crinkles. I don't have a problem with that. Hell, you can whack both of them, Honker said. Means nothing to me. Thanks, Crinkles said. I appreciate that. De nada said Honker. The maniac guided us to another pair of wooden chairs. Although he had backup now, he nevertheless secured our cuffs to one of the back rails, as he had done previously. The two newcomers began to unload the cargo on the handcart. There were at least a hundred one-kilo bricks of a gray substance wrapped in what appeared to be greasy, translucent paper. I'm not a demolitions expert, 
not even a demolitions dabbler, but I figured those were the explosives of which the maniac had spoken. Honker and Crinkles are physically the same type, broly and thick neck, but quick on their feet. They reminded me of the Beagle Boys. In the Scrooge McDuck comic books that I loved as a child, a group of criminal brothers were perpetually scheming to raid Uncle Scrooge's enormous money bin, where he swam through his fortune as if it were an ocean, and occasionally recontoured the acres of gold coins with a bulldozer. These felons were blunt-faced, round-shouldered, barrel-chested, dog-like creatures that stood erect in the manner of human beings had hands instead of paws, and owned a signature wardrobe of prison-striped shirts. You may know them from DuckTales, ladies and gentlemen. Although Honker and Crinkles chose not to advertise their villainy by the outfits they wore, they were body doubles for those comic book villains. The Beagle Boys, however, were more handsome than Honker, and a lot less scary-looking than Crinkles. These two worked quickly, tirelessly. They were obviously happy to be occupying some useful criminal activity. While his associates distributed bricks of plastic explosives to all points of the subcellar in this room and others, the maniac sat at the study table. He carefully synchronized the clocks on more than a dozen detonators. He hunched over his work, concentrating intensely. He pinched his tongue gently between his teeth. His dark hair fell across his forehead and he kept brushing it back, out of his eyes. If you squinted, blurring the scene just a little, he looked like a 12-year-old hobbyist, assembling a plastic model of a Navy fighter jet. Lori and I were far enough away from him that we could talk privately if we kept our voices low. Leaning close, she said conspiratorially, If we're in the room alone with Crinkles... I'm going to tell him I'm having a female emergency. Being in the hand of three psychotics instead of one, hearing herself referred to as it, listening to them discuss our execution with no more emotion than if they had been deciding who should take out the trash. I had thought all of that would surely give her second thoughts about reckless actions based on wildly exuberant optimism. To Lori Lynn... Three psychotics just meant two more opportunities to bamboozle someone with the female emergency story, get her hands on a nail file, and stab her way to freedom. You're going to get us killed, I warned again. That's lame. They're going to kill us anyway. Weren't you listening? But you'll get us killed sooner, I said, managing to make a whisper surprisingly shrill, and realized that I sounded as if I had a university degree and wimp. What happened to the kid who had been pumped up for intergalactic warfare? Wasn't he still inside me somewhere? Lori couldn't get her hand out of the cuffs, but she could slip her hand out of mine. She looked as if she wanted to wash it in carbolic acid. When it comes to romance, I'd had some success, but I wasn't a reincarnation of Rudolph Valentino. In fact, I didn't need a little black book to record the phone numbers of all my conquests. I didn't even need a page from a little black book. A post-it note would do. One of the half-sized post-its you stick to the fridge as a reminder. Just room enough to print, buy carrots for dinner. Here I had the clearest shot that Cupid was ever likely going to give me. Chained to the most beautiful woman I had ever met. And I couldn't take advantage of the moment. I couldn't woo her and win her. 
for the stupid reason that I wanted to live. We'll get an opportunity, I told her, and when it comes, we'll take it, but it's got to be something a lot better than the female emergency gimmick. Like what? Something that'll give us an edge. Such as something, I don't, I don't know, something. We can't just wait, she said. Yeah, we can. We're just waiting to die. No, I said, pretending I was analyzing the situation, seeking advantages, instead of vamping in hope of a miracle. I'm waiting for the right opportunity. You're going to get us killed, she predicted. I threw some withering scorn at her. What happened to the indefatigable optimist? You're smothering her. She had lobbed the scorn back at me so fast that my face was flushed and burning with it before I fully realized I had taken the hit. Chapter 12 Sitting two stories under the evil streets and surrounded by the evil earth of Snow Village, we watched Honker, Crinkles, and the nameless maniac plant explosives at key structural points and plug timers into the charges. You might think that our terror sharpened by the minute. I speak from much experience when I say that it isn't possible to sustain terror at a peak for a long period of time. If monstrous misfortune can be called a disease, terror is a symptom of it. Like any symptom, it's not expressed continuously to the same degree, but waxes and wanes. Sick with the flu, you don't vomit every minute of the day and are not in the throes of diarrhea from dawn to dusk. That may be a disgusting analogy, but it's apt and vivid. I'm glad I didn't think of it while chained to those chairs with Lori because in my eagerness to patch things up with her and break the frigid silence between us, I probably would have blurted it out just to have something to say. I soon discovered that Lori wasn't one to gild an offense or nurse her anger. In perhaps two minutes, she broke the silence and became my chum and co-conspirator once more. Crinkles is the weak link, she said softly. I loved her throaty voice, but I wished that she would use it to say something that made sense. At that moment, Crinkles was packing plastic explosives around the base of a ceiling support column. He handled the boom clay with no more trepidation than a child playing with silly putty. He doesn't look like a weak link, but maybe you're right, I said by way of conciliation. Trust me, he is. Now, with both hands busy shaping explosives, Crinkle held a detonator in his teeth. Do you know why he's the weak link? Lori asked. I'm eager to hear. He likes me. I counted to five before replying, the better to ensure that my voice was free of an argumentative tone. He wants to kill you. Before that. Before what? Before he asked the grinning Phoebe if he could kill me, he very distinctly expressed a romantic interest. This time, I counted to seven. The way I remember it, I said in a tone that I hoped would be taken for cheerful reminiscence, he wanted to sexually assault you. You don't sexually assault someone you don't find attractive. Actually, you do. It happens all the time. Maybe you would, she said, but not most men. Sexual assault isn't about sex, I explained. It's about power. She frowned at me. Why do you find it so hard to believe the crinkles might think I'm cute? Only after I got the 10 did I say, 
You are cute. You're beyond cute. You're gorgeous. But Crinkles isn't the kind of guy who falls in love. Do you mean that? Absolutely. Crinkles is the kind of guy who falls in hate. No, I mean the other part. What other part? The cute beyond cute gorgeous part. You're the most amazing looking person I've ever seen, but you've got to. That's so sweet, she said. But I'm not sensitive about my looks, and though I like compliments as much as any girl does, I prefer honesty in the long run. I'm aware of my nose, for instance. Honker lumbered in from the adjacent room, slouched to the explosive-laden handcart, looking like nothing so much as a troll brooding over whether he had added enough sage and butter to the child currently cooking in his oven. Still holding the detonator in his teeth, Crinkles blew his nose in his hand and wiped his hand on the sleeve of his jacket. The maniac prepared the last of the detonators. When he noticed me looking at him, he waved. My nose is pinched, Lori said. It's not pinched, I assured her, because in truth it was no more pinched than the nose of a goddess. It's pinched, she insisted. All right, maybe it's pinched, I agreed to avoid an argument, but it's pinched in a totally perfect way. Then there's a problem with my teeth. I was tempted to seize her wonderfully full lips, pull them apart, inspect her choppers as a vet might examine a racehorse, and declare them fit in no uncertain terms. Instead, I smiled and kept my voice calm. There's nothing wrong with your teeth. They're white and even, as flawless as pearls. Exactly, she said. They don't look real. People must think I have false teeth. No one will think a woman as young as you has false teeth. There's Chilson Strawberry. No matter how often I put it through the mill wheels of my mind, that statement wouldn't process. What is Chilson Strawberry? She's a friend of mine, my age exactly, and she does bungee tours. Bungee tours? She puts together travel packages and takes groups of people all over the world to bungee jump off bridges and stuff. I wouldn't have dreamed you could make a living packaging bungee tours. She does quite well, Lori assured me, though I don't like to think what all that taunting of gravity is going to do to her breasts in 10 years. I didn't know what to say to that. I took some pride in having found something to say throughout the conversation so far, regardless of his mystifying turns. I figured I had earned a time out. Barely pausing for breath, Lori said, Chilson lost every one of her teeth. Interested in spite of myself, I said, how'd she do that? Did a bungee break? No, it wasn't work-related. She screwed up on her motorcycle, flipped, rolled, and smacked her face into a bridge abutment. My teeth throbbed with sympathy pain so bad that for a moment I couldn't speak. When they rebuilt her jaw, Lori said, they extracted which teeth hadn't been broken out in the accident. Later, they implanted fabrications. She can crack walnuts with them. Considering that she's a friend of yours, I said with complete sincerity, I'm wondering what happened to the bridge abutment. Not so much as you might think. Dad, the hose the blood off. There were a few chips and a little crack. Her face was guileless. Her limpid eyes were not evasive. If she was putting me on, she gave no clue of it. You've got to meet my family, I said.
Uh-oh, she said. Something's happening. Blinking, mildly disoriented, I looked around, as though coming out of a trance. I have forgotten about Honker, Crinkles, and the Grinning Phoebe. Although at least half the bricks of the plastic explosive remained on the handcart, Honker pulled it out of the room, through the alcove door, into the tunnel by which he had arrived. Having synchronized the final detonator, the nameless maniac presented it to Crinkles, along with the handcuff key, and gave him instructions. When you're finished here, bring the babe and the ox with you. Ox. The feed was my size, and I'm sure he didn't think of himself as an ox. He followed Honker into the tunnel. We were alone with Crinkles, which was like being alone with Satan in the sadomasochism wing of hell. Lori waited a minute to be sure those in the tunnel had gone too far to hear, and then she said, Oh, Mr. Crinkles? Don't do this, I pleaded. Crinkles had gone to the distant end of the room to insert the last detonator in the charge that he had packed around another column. He appeared not to have heard Lori. Even if he thinks you're cute, I said, he's the kind of guy who will be as happy to sexually assault you after he's killed you as before. And how does that help us? Necrophilia, that's a terrible thing to say about a person. He's not a person. He's a Morlock. She brightened. H.G. Wells, the time machine. You really are a reader. Of course, you could have just seen the movie. Crinkles isn't a person. He's Grendel. Beowulf, she said, naming the work in which the monster Grendel lurked. He's Tom Ripley. That's the psychopath in some books by Patricia Highsmith. Five books, I said. Tom Ripley is the essential Hannibal Lecter 30 years before anyone had ever heard of Hannibal. Having finished his work at the distant end of the long room, Crinkles returned to us. As our Grendel approached, I expected Lori to tell him she had a female emergency. She smiled at him and batted her eyelashes but hesitated to speak. Crinkle's mouth was puckered strangely. He appeared to be rolling something on his tongue as he unlocked the second set of handcuffs that secured our cuffs to the chair. As we got to our feet, still tethered to each other, Lori tossed her head to fluff her hair. With her free hand, she undid a button at the top of her blouse to better reveal her lovely throat. Trouble. She was making herself look more seductive before announcing that she had a female emergency. Being seductive with crinkles made no more sense than trying to unwind a coiled rattlesnake by kissing it. He would see through her even quicker than had the nameless maniac, and he would be so pissed by her attempt to manipulate him that he put the nail file through her eye. Apparently, my credentials as a reader and the analogy I had drawn between crinkles and various monstrous fictional characters gave her reason to pause. She glanced at me, hesitated. Before she could speak, Crinkle spat into his hand the object he had been rolling on his tongue. It was round, the size of a large gumball, gray and glistening with saliva. The ominous glob might have been something other than a wad of the plastic explosive, but that's sure what it appeared to be. Maybe he got a thrill from holding in his mouth a couple of ounces of concentrated death, so potent that if detonated, it would turn his head into a spray of mush. Or maybe this was the good luck ritual. 
the equivalent of kissing the dice before throwing them across the craps table. Or maybe he just liked the taste. After all, some people enjoy cream spam. He might really have a festival of flavor if he first rolled the round treat and crushed spiders. Without a comment about it, he put the gray wad on the chair on which I had been sitting and said, Let's get out of here. Move it. On our way to the alcove that waited behind the secret door on the bookshelves, we walked past the table on which stood Lori's purse. She boldly picked it up as we passed. Behind us, Crinkles raised no objection. 916-633-1537, Wretched and Ratchet at gmail.com, Ratchet Book Club on Twitter, Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. You can leave a review on Spotify, it takes like 13 seconds. You can also leave a review on uh, Podchaser, copy and paste that into Apple Podcasts, and then copy and paste that into the Good Pods app. You can donate to the show at patreon.com slash single simulcast. One dollar will get you a ton of content. Uh, you can also donate to the show at buymeacoffee.com slash sscast or on the Good Pods app. You can leave a tip in the tip jar. Thank you so much for listening. I greatly appreciate it. Y'all be good. I'm going to you later. Peace. outro to Ratchet Book Club is by That Kid Garan and it's called Goodbyes. You can email him at tkgbeats94 at gmail.com for more information on how to lease this beat. This is Single Simulcast.